the Inclusive Growth Podcast, leading the conversation on achieving economic prosperity for all. Welcome to the second episode of the Inclusive Growth Podcast. Today, we are hosting a post-COP26 special edition. We will unpack the key takeaways from the climate conference in Glasgow and debate what this means for a local and fair transition to net zero. It's now broadly accepted that the cost of inaction on climate change is far more than the cost of preventative action today. Even the Treasury has said it. But without this preventative action, the UK will experience increasingly devastating flooding, extreme weather events, and these will result in the destruction of livelihoods and homes. So the case cannot be understated. And many countries are, of course, already experiencing this and people are having to find new homes in new parts of the world in order to be able to still live and work. Here in the UK, CPP estimates that 2.4 million people rely on jobs with high greenhouse gas emissions, and these are industries that will need to industrially transform or will have or will basically be put in decline over time. So today we start from the premise that the need to limit global temperature rises is a given, but we need to make sure it's delivered in a way that protects the most vulnerable to, from a change from carbon intense industries to a greener economy. And just to say a bit on our work at CPP, um, everything we do um, considers regional inequality or the levelling up agenda, as it's now called. And this, of course, goes hand in hand with the just transition. Put simply, if the transition to net zero is not fair, then levelling up and reducing regional inequalities will fail. And what's more, in order to maintain the political will to address climate change, it will be crucial that the transition to net zero does not leave workers and their communities behind. The COP26 agreement made a nod to the just or fair transition to net zero, but we know that local leaders really are the ones that are leading this agenda locally. So we were really pleased that at CPP, our inclusive growth network of 12 local and combined authority leaders made a statement during COP that made a shared commitment to making the transition to net zero fair. Today, I'm delighted we have two esteemed guests to discuss what next post COP26 and where we go from here to deliver a local and fair transition to net zero. We have CPP visiting fellow and writer Nick Tyrone. Hi Nick. Hello. And Nick has written for CPP on how the UK can transition to a net zero green economy in a way that leaves no people or place behind. Um, secondly, we have Professor Karen Turner. Hi Karen. Hi. Um, Karen is Director of the Centre for Energy Policy at the University of Strathclyde and a former Scottish Just Transition Commissioner with extensive publications on the public policy challenges posed by the Just Transition. So really delighted to have you both here today. Thanks for joining us. If I may, I would like to kind of start, kick us off on the big picture. You know, we've just had a very busy few months on this agenda. We've had the government's net zero strategy, followed by an autumn statement and spending review that didn't really mention net zero or the just transition. And then that was sandwiched with COP26 at Glasgow. So Nick, if I may ask, how is the UK doing in terms of um, the transition to net zero? And especially when we're looking at our peers? Well, yes, uh, it, it's very interesting when we look at our peers, which I'll come on to in a moment, but just what the UK government's doing at the moment. In November of last year, they launched something they called the 10 point plan for a green industrial revolution. Um, and it, it's actually, the thing I will say about it is it's actually, in terms of its targeting, it's very ambitious. In terms of the areas that it looks at, uh, it's very good. It's 
a lot like some of the stuff that comes out with this government. If you just looked at it for about 10 seconds, you might think, oh, this isn't too bad. The problem is that it's when you go into the detail that you have the problem. So uh, a good example would be um, 0.7 of the 10 point plan is around greener buildings. So uh, the insulate Britain stuff. So very timely. Uh, and they've got a, they've got a, a target that that they say is to ensure that the public sector has reduced its direct emissions by 50% compared to a 2017 baseline by 2032. Now it's around uh, 600,000 heat pumps. But then you look at the fact that they don't really have the sentiment at large, really, so that there's work there to be done. They face a shortage of people to install the pumps. You know, basically, when you look at any practicalities about how this would actually happen, there's really nothing in the plan and there's nothing that I can take from any, any, anywhere else, anything, any, anything subsequent that the government has said. It's, it's sort of like, yeah, we're going to do this thing. And then you go, how? And then you go, it's not very clear. Um, in terms of um, retrofitting uh, homes and buildings, it basically looks like they want to retread the Green Homes Grant, but just give it a different name. I mean, that's, that's what it looks like to me. It's the same basic sort of thing. Uh, and if that's it, it will fail for the same reasons. That contractors could be approved to do it was complicated and inefficient. Um, incentives of homeowners were bad. The, pl yeah. the plan was badly publicized. You know, everything yeah. that you could do wrong, they kind of did wrong. And of course, it completely failed and didn't get anywhere near uh, where it had to. Um, yeah. And is that when we look at our peers in comparison to us? So if if your summary there is sort of we're good on targets, less yeah. good on the delivery, how yeah. does that shape up to our peers? Well, I'll look at the EU and the US. So the EU, um, I would describe as they're doing less than the UK. Their targets aren't as ambitious, but they're doing what they're doing much better. Mm. So it's much more involved when you look at the things that they want to achieve. Um, they're doing them really well. So basically, they've got this circular circular economy plan, which is based uh, basically it's it's about cutting down on waste, moving to more sustainable materials, and that's kind of it. Like that's really what they're focused on. But you can see how they're doing it, and it's actually very effective. Um, so basically, it's just it's less ambitious than what the UK is doing. Although with the proviso that a lot of that stuff's being done at um, at uh, within national governments within the EU, obviously. Yeah. And COP26, we're hot on the heels of it. What's your sort of headline view on, on how that went and how far that got us along? I don't really know you how you can't see it as, as having failed. Um, I mean, I, I just don't know how to put a positive spin on it, even if I was trying to be as you know, optimistic as I kind of possibly could be. I just don't think it was handled very well by the government. I think really what happened was, it was a bit like what I was saying about the 10 point plan for you know, a green industrial revolution. You know, they'd sort of hype themselves. It's like this idea that we can just sort of create these, these huge targets and we can, we can make a plan that looks really good on the surface, but then actually when it comes down to the nitty gritty, it's just not gonna, it's not, it's gonna be exposed and it's not gonna match up. And I think there was a little bit of that at COP. Karen, is that, is that your sense of where we've got to? Um, and then I'd like to pick up with you about the kind of fairness of plans so far. And I think I think I would you know I agree that the devil always is in the detail and the actual how you how, how you do things. I don't think I would be quite as as pessimistic about COP for for two reasons really. One of them is that I, I think there was a a move on from Paris in terms of something very operational it, it sounds like a very boring geeky thing but things like finalizing the Paris rule book and things there wasn't really an implementation plan out of Paris so so there were a number of things that happened you know kind of more granular but I mean broadly 
I think my real fear, and this is the second reason why I'm not, I'm, I'm not keen on talking about it as a, as a failure too much. My real fear on the Friday afternoon was we're not going to get a deal. And the most worrying thing about that was we've already got political opposition rising in the UK. Not, it's not climate denying, but it's almost like climate slowing. And the, the, the kind of old argument that economists are familiar with, you know, about about you know kind of public goods and you know you're so small what difference do you make and my real fear was that you would derail net zero policy which as Nick says is already struggling to get on its feet and move forward you know so I was you know I, I was I was worried that if you don't have anything coming out of it it could derail what policy action you're trying to get going so in that way that they kind of to take the positive signals out of it and try and keep this this whole thing on track, especially when you're talking about public acceptance, which is voter acceptance for politicians and things like that. I, I'm I'm just trying always trying to be a bit half glass half full about this, so that the, the train stays on the track, so to speak. Yeah, and I think if people really get behind this, then that forces pol. I think politicians are are always worried about if we act this way and it has the wrong impact, how are people going to respond and things like that. So there's always that hesitancy. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the phrase you use about climate slowing, because I know yes. I saw in conversations at party conferences, for instance, this was very much linked actually to the just transition. Yes. And people saying, well, because it's not being done fairly, we should go more slowly. Otherwise, we're going to leave people behind. Yeah. Which, <laughs> and, and so on, on that kind of fairness point, I mean, do you think so far the plans are fair? Um, do you think we're doing enough? I think probably not. And I, and I, you know, I think you, we, I'm, you know, kind of starting new research at the moment, looking at things around carbon pricing and things. Cause when you read Treasury's net zero review, you know, it's something that economists like. So, you know, obviously a lot of economists in the Treasury, but, you know, just this idea that if we'd all been paying the cost of the carbon emissions, we wouldn't be in this. this uh, the problem is that we haven't been taking account of the fact that we're damaging the environment. But then, you know, that, that, that doesn't need to be a bad thing or a costly or an inflation or anything. If you if you work with the revenues in the right way, but there's a real danger, you know, carbon taxes, low income households consume a larger share of their income is on on carbon intensive goods. They don't consume as much of anything, but that's a larger share of their income. That would be regressive if you try and make returns back to households through income tax. That itself could be regressive because lower income households don't pay that much income tax in the first place. They don't get that much back. So. I think, you know, that there's a lot of work to be done in terms of A, how you make this happen, and then B, how you do the redistribution mm. in terms of the cost. But, you know, as you said, the, the big thing is the just transition. And the, uh, unfortunately, you know, in terms of workforces, unfortunately, some of the, the climate slowers, I think climate deniers, I think the science has piled up against them. So they've shifted their, 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 their space into how fast you act. You know, the real danger is it's, you know, when we look at examples in the past, you know, obviously when, when Scotland's steel, steel production, you know, kind of went, that wasn't for climate policy reasons, but what it meant was that we, sh we still consume steel, steel, we were just shipping it in from overseas. But but if, if there isn't a clear focus on we are doing something and we're going to have to manage what happens for the workers in the local communities, that's when you get things slipping through and you get, you know, so if you move too slow, then things might start happening to communities and industries and we've not been geared up and ready for it. So if anything, to me, having better plans and moving on them and understanding what the implications might be and thinking what do we need to have in place to offset that, 
that's the best way to go if you want to make the transition just not just slow everything down and then it's kind of like you know the old adage of throwing a, a frog yeah. into a pot of cold water and boiling it up yeah <laughs> No, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think you, you made a really good point about carbon taxes and how they can quickly yeah. become regressive. Yeah. What sort of policies would you like to see to aid that redistribution of the costs and benefits of the move to net zero? Well, I, th- I think this is one of the things that I was, you know, I'm always looking when I read through policy documents, you know, for, for, for the nuggets. And, and, you know, one thing in the, the net zero review was there was very much you know, that when you see academic worker, when you see wider studies, you know, they'll take the broader brush. Well, let's redistribute revenues through very, very broad channels. But what one thing that the Treasury did seem to recognise was it's really much better if you target it. You know, if you think about who's going to be impacted, how do we have to target spending to help them reduce their emissions and 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 to do it in, a, in, a, in an affordable way? So, I, you know, I would like to see, you know, some kind of thinking that, all right, carbon tax revenues might come in at national level but then if you were going to recycle this somehow to help lower income households well what if it involved using that money to pay for the retrofitting then you might channel the funds out at more of a local level I think there really needs you know kind of a joined up conversation and multi-level government talking about well if we're accepting that that, that the immediate preferable mechanism is to do something like carbon pricing and carbon tax, let's really get plans in place for how we can use what we get from that to help people decarbonize and to do it in a way that is affordable with particular attention to those least able to pay. Because I think those of us who are more able to pay, we're just going to have to pay more because we're going to have to take account of the carbon that's been in our consumption all this time. Nick, I'm interested in the kind of governance of this now too. So we've had some great ideas between you both of of how we make the transition to net zero fairer. I suppose at CPP, we're always looking at what is being done or what has been done at a local level. So for instance, you know, Bristol City Council was the first um, governmental body in the UK to uh, announce a climate emergency before Parliament. And now, of course, the majority of... Uh, UK's local authorities have also declared their own climate emergencies but when we think of the sort of the levers that local leaders have do you think it's sort of fair to make their role um, both the kind of delivery of net zero but also in helping making it fair for in terms of the redistribution question that Karen's just raised? I think under the current system of uh, government that we have in terms of where competencies lie. No, I don't think so. Uh, I just don't think it's possible. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the UK is just far too centralised mm-hmm. and England in particular is very centralised because obviously it doesn't even have a regional parliament, which sort of breaks things up like Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland for that matter. Um, so uh, there's a great centralization of, of power. Um, I think that it depends on the council, obviously, but actually I think a lot of councillors would really like to do stuff on this. But the question is what? I think what you need, coming back to what I was saying about, you know, what the the, the UK central government's doing, it needs a, just a much more coherent plan that has, you know, and then you could break that because then if it was coherent and thought out, you could break that down into into constituent levels and that would kind of make sense and then once you knew what they were you could say you could you could make the decision to sort of say well we're going to devolve power on these things and these are the things that are going to um 
uh, drive net zero, particularly locally. I just think for a lot of councillors, I mean, I spoke, I had a, uh, a chance to speak to a lot of them. It was about green growth post COVID. So it was a little bit different, but really in the same kind of ballpark at the end of last year. And really, they just felt like, well, what, what, what can we do? You know, we, 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 a, we, we don't really know what to do a lot of the time. And B, even if we did, would we have the power, the ability to do it? So I think, I think you're, it's sort of an, an overall devolution problem again, particularly within England. Karen, I see you nodding in agreement. Is that? Is yeah, that and, and I think this is a really important point. You know, it, it, you know, widening it in this way that it isn't just about the, you know, kind of even if the ten point plan had been more detailed, and even if you had the net zero strategy fully filled out as 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 a full on strategy that still wouldn't give you all of the answers because I, I think, you know, there are issues around, you know, the, the levels of government that, that, that we have. And I guess, and, you know, kind of, as, as Nick says, England with not having any kind of regional devolution is probably particularly disadvantaged. So you've already got an unevenness across the UK, but I think even in, you know, where you have a, a Scottish parliament, you know, you know, it still, there's all the issues about how money is actually earmarked or put in kind of blocks. And, you know, we've already seen issues with local authorities in Scotland. Their budgets might increase, but the demands on their budgets increase as well, you know, and it's not like there's this fund, you know, you, you can definitely have these funds to do this. Everything's having to go into the pot, you know, to do a number of things. And, and obviously some have got more immediate near-term priorities because as much as everybody can, you know, kind of is concerned, you know, most people are concerned about climate change and, and, and it's a longer term thing. But, you know, we even saw with COVID, things have to be really, really near-term sometimes to, 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 to unlock things. So I think even if we had at national levels, you know, the, these strategies and plans all lined up, I think there are issues, you know, as Nick says, that it's about the devolution of power and decentralisation. Because I think one thing is that, not least because we've got, you know, kind of, obviously in Scotland, there's more fuel poverty because it's a colder climate, so people have got higher bills and things like that. The needs of the, of the more vulnerable people will differ across the country, so you can't have a uniform approach to, oh, this is going to help the lowest 20% of incomes because it's just not as simple as that. And one thing that I've kind of noticed recently in the kind of discourse, especially of the Metro mayors in, in England, you know, Ben Houchin is kind of vying for Teesside to be the, the kind of new centre of the green industrial um, revolution. And he has said recently that, part of his role in this really is talking up Teesside mm. um and I, so I just wondered from a sort of slightly like political political point but Nick what what do you think about that is it that you know we have now these metro mayors who are salespeople, and they're all going to say that each of their areas is going to be the greenest and most transformational um you know industrial revolution green industrial revolution we've ever seen or is this a zero-sum game like what do you make of that no, I think actually, I think the city mayors is probably the one bright spot from an England from England's point of view. I think um, because yeah, I think you know if you were starting from scratch and you were building a system out of nothing, you probably wouldn't you you wouldn't quite build what we've got. But if the one way to devolve things within England is probably more to the cities and and, and to to the the uh, the mayors, that's great. And if I think if it leads to uh, more net zero outcomes. I mean, that would be, I mean, that would be fantastic really is if somehow the, the uh, city mayors could drive a lot of this 
and somehow <laughs> cohere into something that then actually drove that upwards. Um, that would be fantastic. I mean, I don't know if that will happen, but it'd be nice to, it's nice to think it's possible. Well, we've got a leveling up white paper coming up in a few weeks time. So maybe that will ho hold all the answers. Well, yes, yes, <laughs> mate, perhaps, yes. yes. <laughs> I, I just sort of want to ground our conversation a bit because of course this challenge has come around before. Karen, as you said, even, you know, in Scotland as recently as, you know, over a, de a decade ago, but of course also back in the 1980s when we faced mm -hmm. um, widespread deindustrialization. Do you think the kind of lesson we learned from that, Karen, was, you know, it's so difficult, it's almost impossible to do this fairly and, you know, for us to have a fair transition that will support the leveling up wide, uh, leveling up agenda and this is just sort of pie in the sky? Or do you think there's there's things we can learn from how it was done before? Well, I think, you know, I, I'm hearing the, the, this term quite a lot, you know, kind of, you know, recently, and, and it's one of these terms that I actually quite like about not, you know, not making, you know, kind of, you know, kind of perfection the enemy of the good and things like that. I mean, I, I think obviously we need to, as you outlined right at the start, you know, there is a climate emergency going on and it might not be impacting us yet as much as it's impacting other pe people in other countries, but it is impacting. And over time, that will actually start to affect economies as well. You know, I mean, it's not like the economy will keep on going, even if the world's kind of going to pop with climate change. So, so that, you know, things need to be done. And I think it's, there are going to be huge challenges and, you know, kind of, could you get to an outcome where everything is absolutely perfect, you know, kind of a utopian fairness? Probably not. But I think so long as that has always been kept in, you know, that what are the criteria every time you move forward on something? And I think that makes you look at, at what plans might be more carefully, you know, and, you know, one of the things that we've been concerned about, you know, certainly, you know, in the context of, of the, the, the English regions where obviously that there's funding now to do things like carbon capture and storage and hydrogen and things. And I think the appeal there for those regions is if you can replace heavy industry capacity with the new, you know, what they're saying is if the economy is going to transition, we want to have our share and the capacity we've got from the old stuff will help us to do the new stuff. So they want their, their share of that. But, you know, there are issues around if there has to be government intervention, how are the how are the costs recovered? And if that was through those industries, you could get a kind of kickback and you know the leveling up. There might be a tension between your your green growth and your and your and your leveling up and things like that. But I think it's so long as there's a comprehensive look being taken at different things and how you're going to do them. You know, I think in the past that what happened in the 80s and 90s with deindustrialization, it was for different reasons. But we did start to see these not only the jobs being lost in the factories or whatever that were being directed impacted it's the surrounding communities and supply chains and I think there's a lot more understanding of that now out there of how these things can go wrong so it's really important you learn from the past but at the same time you know one of the main areas that Scotland's not done as well as it should have done or as it promised to do was was around renewables we've we've done exceptionally well in getting the renewable capacity out there but we were moving so quick that we imported a lot of that and then now that caused problems with trade unions and like who don't see the jobs. But it also means that, you, that it, not only are we not realizing the value, we're doing things like shipping huge turbines across the world and, 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 and getting, you know, and this is part of the thing, we're still using steel, there's petrochemicals and things go into these things and we need to understand them carefully so we'll understand the implications of what we're doing. So I think my worry is we keep on saying we need to learn from the past. 
But particularly in the context of building new industries, I'm not sure that we are because we're not looking at the problem the same way because I think there's almost this thing, we can do a green economy and there's lots of opportunities. That doesn't mean you don't worry about the losses and how you're going to compensate them and how you're going to help people move their careers. And it's very complex for people. You know, for example, I think that the average worker in the oil and gas industry is over the age of 45. So you can have all these fantastic new career opportunities are they going to have the confidence to take them up? Are they going to find them accessible and things like that? So in that way, again, taking us back to the thing, if you had more local level kind of empowerment to be able to do things, people at the local level will better understand their workforces. They better understand their communities. They better understand the, the particular conditions that people are living in that make them vulnerable. Because as I said before, they will vary. Nick, do you see any you know, in terms of the, the tensions as Karen was setting out between the sort of green growth and levelling up agenda, do you, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful? Well, here's the thing. I'd say I'm hopeful in the sense that I, I don't think it's it's um, it's an unavoidable problem. Like as in, I, I, I think it's an avoidable problem. Um, I guess my pessimism would come in is around uh, just coming back to the government and the lack of, of a real practical strategy. So I think if, I think the biggest thing about selling a lot of this stuff to the public is, you know, if, if there's jobs that are being created and there's clearly being jobs created in it uh, and, and it feels like there's a fair transition. So um, as Karen was saying, you know, we've got all these jobs in the oil industry. How's that going to transition? If people can see that that's being done in some way that seems fair uh, I think that will help a lot. My worry is that we might come to a point where the transition sort of hits us and it's a bit chaotic for a while. Mm -hmm. And actually people just sort of fall through the cracks uh, and there's people who just lose their job. Because I think that unless you really think about th these things in quite a lot of detail, that's what's inevitably going to happen. I think the right government could overcome these problems. I'm just not sure that this government can. Absolutely. Fair enough. I'll, I'll leave the, the open, ambiguous answer to that, <laughs> that question. Leave that hanging in the air, shall I? Just just to kind of bring together the conversation. I think it's been a really um, pragmatic, realistic conversation. So thanks so much to the both of you. I suppose just in terms of your ask to Whitehall, um, you know, our, our central government politicians, it doesn't have to be one thing, but, you know, what what's the essence if if you were to kind of go to them now and, and pitch for your um, ideal kind of type of policy that would help make this a fair transition, bolstering the levelling up agenda, what would it be? Karen, can I come to you first? I think, you know, kind of often the ask here is, is there a low hanging fruit? And I think the problem is, you know, if they were low hanging, we probably had them. I mean, I think a fundamental thing here, you know, um, Nick mentioned earlier the Green Homes Grant. Now that went off the road, but the rails, but that was implementation. You know, I mean, we we, we worked with with colleagues and and Bays and looking at you know what is the case for public support. Mass would be focus attention because the, the 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 retrofitting of the building stock is so important to reduce emissions, to make even in the current environment, even if we were staying with the fuels we have, people are living in fuel poverty. You know, so, so it's, 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 it seems to be the kind of no-brainer, let's get it sorted out with the housing stock because then you're going to control people's energy bills. You're going to make them warmer. You're going to make them healthier, which will, you know, will have implications in terms of health demands. If you can do something like that where there is an obvious win, 
that's going to start, it makes people better off so that they can bear costs that might come down the line. You make government revenues better, you know, if you can, you know, you know, that an expansion process of people have got lower energy bills, they can, they've got money to spend on other things. You know, if you start to kind of bolster revenues, then you've got more money to spend on other things. So it just seems to me that I, I think, you know, like, like Nick said, other countries might be doing less things, but doing them very well. I think if we had to pick, there's one thing you've got to do and you've got to do it well, I would say, well, let's just get on top of this retrofitting the housing stock lowering people's energy bills and bringing those emissions down because not only will that be a big success it will really help us moving forward with some of the other costly stuff and more difficult stuff that's brilliant thank you karen for that call to action nick what's yours uh well karen's right retrofitting is really the thing but i mean just a short example so the government's pledging to make all uh rented non-domestic properties so basically offices uh band b uh epc minimum by 2030, which again is pretty ambitious because it's band E right now. Mm-hmm. But this sort of gives you some idea of where they're at. So they're not, there's no even ratcheting up process. Mm-hmm. That's like, at least that's in the plans at the moment. So it's like, so are we going to jump from band E in 2021 to band B? And mm-hmm. there's not going to be any ratcheting. It's just things like that where you just think, come on, guys, this, this is such relatively easy holes to fill can we just can we just do you know you don't have to completely rip up everything you've got but what you need to do is just have a serious think about the thing about the goals that you've you've you that you want to achieve and just think about where you've got some gaping holes in the plan and just fill them make it like i mean in essence just make it like any other public policy area just make it look like you're really going to do this because i think again one of the problems we've got is i think there's whole sectors of, of the business community that I think are just don't think that none of this is very serious. As mm-hmm. in not climate change, what I mean is the government's mm-hmm. goal and their strategy isn't a serious one. So when you look at things like going from band E to band B, I think they'll look at the plans and go, well, none of this is serious because if it was serious, they'd be saying next year it's band D or whatever. There'd be a there'd be a serious set of plans that made sense and business would go, okay, this is really serious. We really need to do this. Whereas I think what happens a lot of the times they just think, well, this is just one of those goals. We'll get to 2028 and we'll say, none of this is achievable. Can we kick it to 2035? You know, with the idea that a lot of these things can just continuously be kept kicked into long grass. Again, the answer to this is just really simple. Just do things that make it look like you're really serious about it instead of just you know, vague goals. This, and I think this interim target setting, you know, that, that was laid out in COP is something that's really good to do. We'll all come back next year. But, you know, it, it is this, I mean, like with me, with PhD students, I would never say, go off and write your whole thesis. I want to see chapters in between. I want to see drafts. And I think that, that that's another really important point is, can we have more of these, you know, kind of interim targets and have really, you know, so that you can check and correct if things are not on track? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just makes it all sound way more serious. And people just, yeah. people in the business community will just inevitably take it more seriously. Because if you're saying you've got to get all your properties up, all the properties that fall below this have got to be up here by next year, you have to take that very seriously. Saying you're going to make this big jump in eight, you know, nine years or whatever. Mm-hmm. And how we're going to get there, we don't know. I mean, it's like in any walk of life, that just doesn't work. It's just a, it's just a recipe for um, it not being done, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm actually feeling, you know, with with practical and minds like yours, Nick and Karen, I'm feeling like we're going to get there. So in sum, I'm, I'm not going to try and summarize our whole discussion, but I think three key takeaways here. I think we're saying 
yes, government, well done on your targets, but now it's time for implementation. And that will involve interim targets to make sure that we're not just making uncredible leaps from, from the status quo to a sunny uplands. We need, if we're going to focus attention, let's get retrofit right and, and pour our focus, energy and investment into that. And if we're going to go bold and do a carbon tax, let's think through the redistribution of the, the monies from that so we can make it a fair transition. Karen, Nick, thank you so much for your time today. It's been brilliant speaking to you. I've loved it. Okay, thank you. Thanks. If you'd like to delve further into all things inclusive growth, the just transition and local leadership, do follow us on Twitter at Centre Pro Policy and sign up to our monthly newsletter. We'd love to hear from you with feedback for ideas for future discussions, so please do track us down and get in touch.